Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we explore the timely topic of global trends in democracy and dictatorship with Michael J. Abramowitz, president of Freedom House, an organization that tracks democratic governance around the world. Before joining Freedom House in February 2017, Mr. Abramowitz was director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education. He led the museum's genocide prevention efforts and later oversaw its public education program. He was previously national editor and then White House correspondent for the Washington Post. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and former fellow at the German Marshall Fund and the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. A graduate of Harvard College, he's also a board member of the National Security Archive. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike Abramowitz. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time. So your organization recently released a study of Democracy Under Lockdown was the title uh, that analyzes worldwide trends in freedom during the coronavirus pandemic. And it found that 80 countries were less free than when the pandemic began. Can you tell us more about the findings of the report? Sure. If I may, John, I'd like to just say just one very quick word about Freedom House, uh, mm-hmm. just so your listeners know kind of what we do. We, we really do two things. We, we, we document and analyze uh, trends with respect to freedom and democracy. So our most uh, uh, important report is Freedom in the World, which is a, uh, uh, a look at the state of democracy, the state of freedom in, in every country in the world. We do that every year. Uh, we do some other reports as well. We also support the work of uh, human rights defenders and journalists who are working overseas, often in authoritarian settings. So we're kind of an unusual combination of a, of a think tank and a do tank. And we uh, are very strongly bipartisan. And over the years, we've had people from across the political aisle on our board and on our staff. So I just I, I just wanted to make, put that as context. Great. Thanks and, for that clarification. Sure. And, and, and as you suggested, uh, it's kind of interesting that our, our, our last Freedom of the World report came out just before or just as the pandemic was was hitting globally. And at the time, uh, the trends in democracy were not good, and we thought they were going to get even worse because of uh, uh, COVID-19. So we decided to do a special kind of mid-year report looking at the health of de- global democracy from the perspective of the impact of the pandemic. And uh, the report uh, was based on uh, interviews that we conducted uh, online uh, from about 400 democracy and human rights experts. And we did this survey in partnership with a uh, survey firm called GQR. And we also combined that survey with our own research that we do from our global network of analysts. And so this report covers a period from January to August 2020. And as you say, the the key findings of the report is that we found that the condition of democracy and human rights has grown worse uh, in in 80 countries. Uh, There was only one country where we saw it improve, that was Malawi, which uh, had a uh, 
well, a, a, a free and fair election after having a previously fraudulent one. And uh, we saw the deterioration as particularly acute in uh, struggling democracies and highly repressive states. And uh, what was really concerning is that of our of the experts we surveyed, about 64% agreed that uh, the impact of COVID-19 on democracy and human rights in their country of focus will be mostly negative over the next three to five years. And we looked at five issues in particular as uh, issues that would be affected that are being affected by the pandemic. One is the transparency of government information on the pandemic. Two is corruption. Three is protection for vulnerable populations. And, and fourth is government abuses of power. As a former journalist, uh, I was particularly concerned about the fifth theme of the report, which is that uh, there's been just a huge impact on the functioning of the independent news media. We found that at least 91 of 192 countries that we looked at have experienced restrictions on the news media as part of the uh, uh, response to the outbreak. And uh, this is making it quite difficult to disseminate vital information and, and really places both public health and freedom of expression at risk. You know, one silver lining, if you will, uh, if you remember, John, 2019 was a year of mass protest in places for, like Hong Kong, Sudan, uh, many countries in the world. You saw a real demand for democracy and freedom, if you will, that was uh, that was bubbling up uh, from the ground. And uh, and and one 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 key finding of our report is that those mass protests have incredibly continued even under the lockdown situation. So uh, we found that although 158 countries had placed new restrictions on assembly and gatherings, significant protests had taken place in at least 90 countries. So uh, the year of the protest is not over. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, it raises the question, at least for me, about, you know, what is exactly about a pandemic that contributes to the erosion of democracy? I mean, you might imagine that this is a, an occasion when leaders want to have their countries pulled together and, uh, you know, are not interested in repressing them. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, why is that? Right. Well, I think, you know, any crisis that puts a strain on a system is going to be kind of a test of its strength. And, you know, I think of what happened, you know, with not in the aftermath of nine 11, where, uh, you know, in the, in the year or two after nine 11, you know, a lot of decisions were made by the government to restrict civil liberties, increase surveillance, uh, you know, that really tested our democracy, you know, kind of the same thing with economic crises, which often provide an opening for uh, politicians uh, making false claims or bringing false hopes about what they're going to do. I think with COVID-19, people are scared and they know that uh, some restrictions are merited, uh, but, you know, most don't have the expertise to know exactly what. And so that's really left a, an opportunity for leaders who craved more power to take advantage of the moment and consolidate their rule. And so we've seen that happening uh, in our survey in countries, you know, ranging from Hungary, uh, which had, uh, uh, you know, some emergency powers granted to the government there, Sri Lanka, where the uh, 
authorities move very adeptly really to uh, consolidate you know more authoritarian uh, kind of rule and then china of course which is probably the strongest and most influential authoritarian power in the world right now right so um, I mean, one of the most important recent scholarly, scholarly analyses of these kinds of issues, namely Stephen Levitsky and uh, Daniel Ziblatt's How Democracies Die, basically argues that uh, democracies die gradually rather than all of a sudden, as they argue you know, they used to do. Um, does your report bear out that kind of finding? Uh, in a, excuse me. In a broad sense, yes. One point I would just make initially is that when you when we talk about backsliding or autocratization, which are words scholars could use, there are there are different settings in which it occurs. So if say Russia becomes more autocratic as it has in the last two decades, that's not a democracy dying because the system never democratized. It's still concerning, but it's for a different reason. So what we're really talking here is, you know, backsliding democracies, uh, countries that, you know, had uh, relatively uh, speaking been uh, on a path towards greater and greater openness, greater democracy. We're talking about countries like Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Venezuela. Uh, I think one of the positive trends in recent years is that relatively speaking, there have been you know, fewer sharp breaks, you know, such as the military coups of the 60s or 70s or communist revolutions. So that, you know, in response directly to your question, uh, declines in those kinds of countries we're talking about are happening more gradually uh, in the kind of current wave of uh, greater author- authoritarian behavior. So, you know, the stronger that the institutions in a country has, you know, the longer it takes. So in a country like Hungary, where democratic institutions were relatively well established after the end of communism, the Fidesz government has spent years, really almost 10 years, chipping away at the underpinnings of democracy, uh, especially the media, the courts, the electoral framework. And so after all this enabled the party uh, to win a supermajority in parliament, and so the gradual declines that we had been seeing uh, started to snowball. And you know this is happening through different means. So what you see in a number of these democratic settings is democracies retreating through putatively legal measures. So constitutional reforms, judicial takeovers, pressure or co-optation of the owners of media outlets. You know, this is the story of uh, Poland and Hungary in the last decade. And to some extent, you know, the earlier phase of uh, autocratization in Turkey. Um, The good news about all this is that there's, you know, more time to respond. There's more chance to push back because the process takes longer. Uh, I think the problem is is that the changes are often more subtle, they're harder to identify and less straightforward and and, and candidly, sometimes very hard to explain to average people. You know, if you went to Hungary today, on the face of it, you know, you would seem like, hey, what's what's the problem here? Uh, But 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 if you look at it, it, the authorities of Hungary have made it very, very hard to replace uh, the leadership there. Uh, through normal democratic means. So that's a problem. So you really have to be very vigilant and very direct about confronting encroachments on rights and on independent institutions. 
Right. Um, I mean, a couple of things you've said uh, lead me to wonder about the role of institutions and traditions and history in addressing these issues. That is, uh, I think about the example of China that you've raised. Um, and there was a discussion you know, that hasn't been going on now for a number of years, but for a time, people thought, well, um, uh, China was opening up its markets and its economy, and it was going towards a kind of market framework, uh, and that that would kind of almost inevitably lead to democratization. And that does not seem to have turned out to be the case, certainly not so far. Um, so I wonder, I, I mean, if you look at China's long history, it's not one particularly of, you know, democratic rule, uh, when people compare it to what's going on in our own country at the moment, um, people often speak about the long tradition of democracy that, you know, we can look back on in the United States. So could you talk a little bit about how you see the role of history and tradition in kind of determining these outcomes of dictatorship and democracy? You know, it's a great question, and there's no simple answer here. You know, with directly with respect to China, I think China is really presents a very profound challenge to those of us who, who care about freedom, who care about democracy. As you mentioned, I think China, since kind of the opening up of the country starting in the 1970s, has you know, done an incredible job lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, the country is, you know, much better governed uh, than it was before. And, and, and while it didn't have, you know, the trappings of liberal democracy or the, or the reality of liberal democracy that, 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 you know, many of us would prefer to see, you know, it was, it was, it was moving in a generally, uh, opening kind of direction. And that obviously started with that stops, excuse me, with the, with the arrival of Xi Jinping, who has really taken China in a much more illiberal direction, imposing the great China firewall, which has prevented, you know, much outside information from getting to the Chinese people, uh, much more uh, restrictions on on people's uh, liberties and, and freedoms. Uh, it's interesting that China, starting from a relatively low base, has done even worse than our scores in Freedom House over the last 10 years. And particularly with respect to internet freedom, it's, I think, the least performing, the least well-performing country with respect to respecting internet rights and user rights of any country in the world, according to our most recent survey freedom of the net. Uh, however, China has obviously done a very good job economically, uh, and it really uh, is now kind of holding itself out as a model to the developing world as a, uh, and to dictators in the developing world as a place where you can get, uh, kind of have your cake and eat it too, that you can have economic liberalization uh, coupled with uh, political control and, and repression. And that's a very powerful story that, that we need to combat. I think in the long term, I, I firmly believe that freedom of thought, freedom of openness, you know, leads itself to better uh, 
outcomes for society. And I also think that uh, China may be more brittle on the inside than the current outside uh, image shows. But nonetheless, it's a very powerful and concerning signal to, uh, uh, to those of us who love freedom and democracy. Understood. Um, so I wonder a little bit closer to home. I mean, how would you, uh, you know, assess the significance of the, you know, relative distancing uh, of the Trump administration from the United States, you know, at least in the post-war period, uh, traditional orientation to human rights and certain kinds of alliances. I and mean, what kind of difference does that make in the, you know, index that you all come up with at Freedom House about the trends in sure. democracy? Well, the first thing that I would always start off by saying is that we still have a very robust democracy. And I think any suggestion to the contrary is wrong. You know, we've had concerns for some time about the health of U.S. democracy, and candidly, those concerns predated President Trump. But on a global scale, the United States still does very well. Now, that said, I think anyone who cares about democracy would be concerned about recent trends. And so just a specific data point, uh, over the last 10 years or so, our democracy scores in the United States have declined by about eight points on a hundred point scale. So going from 94 to 86, and there've been a lot of further you know, troubling signs during 2019 and 2020 that would be things that we would be concerned about. So there's new evidence of electoral interference, you know, escalating clashes between the executive branch and the Congress, you know, uh, defiance of congressional authority. I mean, a big issue in the United States is also still the continuing problems uh, in our uh, justice system. Uh, with respect to equal rights for all for all communities, so I I definitely think U.S. democracy is under is under pressure, and I think you know from Freedom House's perspective, I think what I would particularly point out to is that the United States has traditionally been, you know, for for better or for worse, you know, the leader of the free world, and while the United States itself has been an imperfect tribune for democracy at times and has made very serious mistakes. And I think of things like the Vietnam War, uh, the Iraq War. Uh, I still think at our best, we are a, you know, an, an indispensable force for human rights and democracy in the world. And that other countries do look to us uh, for leadership and inspiration on this. It's, it's, it's not a surprise that the protesters in Hong Kong, when they hit the streets last summer, were waving American flags and singing the Star Spangled Banner. So I think that's important for people in the United States to remember that we are an inspiration uh, and a example to the rest of the world, and they're watching closely. And so I do think that 
to the extent that President Trump has kind of departed from that kind of modeling approach, you know, to the extent that he has embraced dictators, to the extent that he has kind of, I would say, instrumentalized human rights so that we only are concerned about the human rights of countries that we oppose from a kind of you know, national security point of view, like Venezuela or Iran, and look the other way with respect to the human rights violations in places like Saudi Arabia or, or Hungary, uh, to name two American allies. I mean, that's, you know, that's of concern. It's always been that we've applied things imperfectly, but I think the gap between our aspirations and our ideals and, our, and the reality has really widened, I think, over the last four years. I mean, I, I guess I want to push you on this a little bit. I mean, I wonder um, to what extent is the world that you and I are kind of talking about um, that, you know, the post-World War II uh, world of international alliances and the notion of the United States as the kind of leader of the free world. I mean, you know, the pandemic seems to have created or revealed the fissures of a world that, um, you know, isn't like that anymore. I mean, it used to be the case that um, in a situation like this, everybody would look to the United States to marshal the best experts and to, you know, mount uh, a response. And that clearly is not the case. Uh, Angela Merkel in Germany has said, you know, essentially we have to figure out our own way forward. I mean, I guess the question in a sense is even if Trump is not reelected and Biden is, um, you know, can that world be put back together again or has it kind of fractured irremediably? I I think that's a great point, John. And I, I think that the world is a lot different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And even if President even if Vice President Biden is elected president, you know, he will have a harder time. But I do think with respect that that people do look to the United States for leadership. And I think it's quite striking that a normal president would have been, you know, really trying to mobilize world, collective world action around COVID-19. The reason that uh, the German chancellor is doing it is because there's an absence of U.S. leadership. Uh, You know, by the way, this is not just a partisan thing. I think that when President Obama was president, you know, he kind of uh, did not want to get involved in the Syria conflict and really studiously kind of stayed out of it. Now, one can have an argument and a discussion about whether or not that was a good idea. But when the U.S. retreated, you saw Russia kind of step into the breach and really help push that conflict into a direction that I think was really against our interests as the United States. So I do think that it's harder. The world has changed. Uh, There's no question about it. But I still think with uh, enlightened U.S. leadership, uh, with uh, uh, paying more attention to our allies, that 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 we can be moving in a in a better direction than we are right now. Got it. So, I guess now it's unavoidable to ask you a little bit about the election that is just around the corner. Sure. Um, 
you know, because it does have such enormous consequences for the world. I mean, the whole world, I think, is in a certain sense watching to see what happens uh, in our election and, you know, watching, I think, widely with considerable concern about where we're going. Um, and I guess I wonder, you know, I don't want to ask you to prognosticate and predict the outcome, but uh, I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see a scenario going forward uh, of, you know, where we'll go, uh, whoever, whoever wins the election. Sure. Well, first of all, anyone who lived through 2016, who can state that they know what's going to happen on November 3rd is crazy. <laughs> so I do think, you know, the polls are suggesting one thing, but I think we just have to be honest that we don't know. And uh, obviously we are, you know, what really matters is what happens in six to 10 states uh, that are still very close. So I, I so you haven't asked me to predict. I'm going to take you up on the offer not to predict. Uh, I, I, a second point I would make is that I do think that the election has laid bare, you know, some of the ongoing systemic problems in American democracy. Uh, we have huge problems with campaign finance and the way that large private and foreign financial interests can influence politicians and campaigns. As we're seeing now, we have an archaic and problematic election system, as we're seeing now, you know, that, dif that disenfranchises people all over the country and makes it much, much harder to vote than it should be. And of course, you know, we have this intense polarization, uh, you know, which has gotten so bad that it's now a matter of the culture war, whether you should wear a mask or not, or whether we should listen to epidemiologists. So I think the election has laid bare the, uh, the, the, the you know, the, the extant problems in, in U.S. democracy. You know, how things play out after the election, it's, it's hard to say. I really do think that it, you know, with, you know, it's, it's a very sharp break between the two candidates and how they would approach things. And I think you've seen that in the debates. And so I, I think uh, uh, we, we will see things go in different directions depending on, on who wins. I, I do hope that you know, I, I do think a lot about the whole issue of polarization, and you know, when you like when you look at polls, there's there, you know, there's a lot of agreement between peoples on things that they're concerned about, whether it's healthcare, the uh, uh, economic economic issues in some respects. Uh, yeah, I, I sometimes think there's more uh, more agreement than than the divisions than than, than people recognize, but we're in a system where it's very hard for politicians to uh, uh, to try to work together to solve these problems, and I, I I remain hopeful that that will change after the election. But I'm a I'm a I'm somewhat skeptical. Right, uh, it's understandable under the circumstances. I mean, I guess in a way, it all raises for me this question about the idea of American exceptionalism, which is often, I think, abused uh, as a kind of you know, shibboleth about the United States and its kind of grand historical role in human history and that sort of thing. But um, it does seem as though this election has, you know, 
revealed in certain ways that we're not maybe quite so exceptional um, and that we're not really unique, as is often said. And, um, you know, and this comes down, comes around to issues of the kind that you and Freedom House address with regard to things like human rights. And you've mentioned this with regard to our, you know, shortcomings in the area of racial justice. Um, And I wonder you know, whether you see this as having that kind of consequence that, you know, the United States will be seen less as this kind of unique kind of beacon in the world and more like a kind of, uh, in some ways, ordinary country that, you know, has a relative, a uniquely um, robust or at least uniquely long-lived um, democratic system, but maybe isn't quite so, you know, released from the laws of gravity. I thought about this question a lot, John, and I appreciate you raising it. And I think it's hard to work at a place like Freedom House without really seeing the United States as part of a global story, right? So that the, you know, that the problems that we have had in the United States are not unique to the United States. You know, just to take a few, gerrymandering. That's a global issue. It's not just a problem that has hampered U.S. democracy. Court packing, uh, trying to uh, 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 influence and control the court system. This is a, a global issue, as we're seeing in a place like Poland, for instance. Uh, attacks on fake news or allegedly fake news as kind of a pretext to kind of take steps against the independent media. That's a global problem, as our survey on the pandemic showed. I think it's still fair to say that we are one of the oldest democracies on the planet, I guess maybe the oldest, uh, and we have strong institutions that I think have you know, helped bolster our defense against some of these trends. And I certainly think that among, you know, the strong institutions, the United States is still a very vibrant and free press. We still have a, uh, you know, I think basically a a strong court system. Uh, But, you know, these institutions are under a great deal of pressure. And so I think it's really important for Americans not to, take it for granted that these institutions will always be strong. Uh, And just to circle back to the point I made in response to your last question, you know, one can have a debate about American exceptionalism. And uh, I do, uh, I do, um, I do think, you know, there's some arguments on both sides, but I do think that the United States uh, does, have a special role to play in the protection of human rights and democracy. And that when the United States does not play that role, uh, human rights and democracy suffers in the world. Got it. Thank you very much. I mean, I guess we're going to see in the near future, in the very near future, uh, how this is all going to play out. Uh, But for now, I want to say that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Mike Abramowitz of Freedom House for sharing his insights 
about recent trends in democracy around the world and in the United States itself. I also want to thank Risto Voinoff for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Bye-bye.